I'm excited about this um, sermon this morning. I, I hope it will go well. It's kind of funny to say that. I hope that every week, but this story has impacted me more this year than, uh, this has been my story of the year uh, for me personally, just in my study of the scriptures. So I'm excited to be able to be here to share it with you. It's fun. Uh, we are working through Genesis. Genesis uh, 1 through 11, we have called the preface. It was really, uh, if God has a narrative that he's going to tell, that narrative really begins with the story of Passover in the book of Exodus. That's where God's narrative, God's drama starts. How many were here for the Seder meals this year? Yeah. We had fun. So uh, that's where God, that's the story that kind of opens up God's narrative. Genesis serves as the inspired, authoritative setup to that narrative. So God starts with the preface in Genesis 1 through 11, where he talks about these big ideas. Who is God, and who is humanity, and what is the world, and what is God doing in the world, and he's looking for a partner. And so in Genesis 12 through 50, we meet that partner. We meet the family of God, people like Avraham, Yitzhak, Jacob, Yosef. These are people we're going to meet in Genesis, and we've been learning as we've walked through the life of Avraham what God's people, what God's Badov, can you remember what Badov means? House of my father, house of my father, right? Uh, household. Uh, so Badov is, what does it mean to be a part of God's family? What does it mean to be a part of this, this household that God's partnering with? And so what we've learned is that God is looking for a people who are willing to be self-sacrificial, which requires trust. If I don't trust the story, if I don't trust that God's for me, that there's enough, if I don't trust that I'm loved, I'm not going to be free to love others. Because if I don't think I have enough, I'm always going to be trying to protect what I have. If I don't think that I'm loved and accepted, I'm always going to be trying to prove myself and do it at the expense of other people. There are these two narratives in the world. God's looking for somebody who's going to be self-sacrificial because he can use that person to lay down their life because they're not trying to save it. Starting to sound familiar like something Jesus said? Yeah. So he, we're not trying to, so that's what God's looking for. He's teaching his people how to take care of everybody within the Badov. He's teaching Abraham what it means to look out for everyone, whether they're a child or a wife or a servant or a slave or anything like that. In his household, everybody matters. So he's been talking about that. Then he's been teaching Abraham how to care about people outside of his Badov, foreigners, outsiders, everybody else, God's looking for a people of radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical love, radical self-service. That's why Servefest, I mean, we're just, we were just dipping into like the tip of the iceberg of what God really is asking for in his people. It's good that we have an event twice a year to do that because it reminds us of who we're called to be all the time. That's the kind of people God can use to put the world back together. Always has. Since since the days of Genesis 4,000 years ago. It's always been the case. It's always been his story. So we've been walking through that. So we're going to pick up where we left off in Genesis 24. You guys ready? Excellent. Genesis 24, here we go. Avraham was now very old. <laughs> this is a good way to start out a story if you ask me. Avraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Now, if you ever wondered what put your hand under my thigh means, I could just skip right over this, but uh, for all of you who would wonder, as I always did, 
Thigh in their world is a euphemism for something else located near your thigh. And if you're thinking, you just confused me even more. In the ancient world, when you made an oath or you made a promise, you were supposed to swear that oath as you were holding the sign of the covenant. Okay? So Abraham's sign of the covenant is this circle. Okay, so... So don't get weirded out by that because in their world, there'd be nothing sexual about this. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture. It's very hard for us to have a conversation like this and not get all weirded out. In their world, it's different. Uh, We could probably have something to learn from that, but I'm not here to preach on that. So put your hand under my thigh really means put your hand under my thigh. Okay. Okay, now, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, see, the more you know, every time you come here, the more you know, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but you will go to the country, go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Yitzhak. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? So Eliezer, he's listening to this, and, and Abraham says, listen, I need you to get, do not get a wife from the Canaanites. Do not get a wife from the Amorites. Swear an oath to me that you're going to go back to my greater family household and find a wife from there. Why? Because the family of Terah, the father of Abraham, was a family that was made of different spiritual DNA. They were a family that was going against the grain. Remember I told you there were two narratives? Okay, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Sodomites, these are people who are going, they've got the narrative of the world, a narrative of self-preservation, a narrative of fear, a narrative of, I gotta appease the gods and appease others around me, not a narrative of self-sacrifice. Abraham says, we cannot, you see, the whole conversation in the New Testament about being unequally yoked, like it was so poorly used when I was growing up through like youth group and stuff. Like, it was just like, well, if we go to the right church, I guess you can date them. No, nobody laughed at that. Okay, um, it, it's not about whether or not they go to the right church or a part of the right, it's that there are two narratives in this world. God is going this way. How could you ever yoke up with something going the opposite direction? I don't care what church they go to or what label they have. God's going this way. Paul says, what business does light have with darkness? Right? You can't go two opposite directions and be yoked together. So this isn't like Abraham trying to be all prejudiced or, or, or choosing some race or anything like that. This is about Abraham saying, God is doing something in the world, and we can't mess that up by letting two narratives. We have to find somebody that's on board with the narrative of God. So promise me. And Eliezer's like, well, that's fine, but what if this woman, if I find her, if I find her, what if she doesn't want to come back to this incredibly dysfunctional family? Thank you. First service didn't laugh at that. Like, I don't know if she's heard the story. You're, tell me about my groom-to-be. Well, his dad tried to kill him earlier in his life, so that's a thing. And he's got a half-brother, but they got kicked out, so that's a thing. Like, what if she doesn't want to come join this messed-up narrative that we're a part of here? Listen to what Abraham says. Make sure you do not take my son back there, Avraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's Badov and my native land, who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land, 
He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So he says, just make sure you do not go back there. If there's something I've learned, Abraham says, through all my life is that I can trust this God to provide what he needs to put his story together. So do not go somewhere else to try to tell a different story. In fact, I'm so confident that God's gonna provide here that if it, if it doesn't come out, if you don't find the woman, if she's not willing to come back, you're, you're released. Now, either from this oath, this oath, a lot of people might read this, like his oath of service to Avraham, I'll set you free and let you start your own beta of, Eliezer. Could be either way, we'll keep moving. Then the servant left, taking with him 10 of his master's camels, 10 of his master's camels, loaded them with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside of the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. And he prayed, Lord, God of my master Avraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Avraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I might have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Yitzhak. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now I think when we hear this Story in a Western mindset, we think he's just trying to set up like a little code, you know, like it's God's base signals, like bunt. Um, okay, so when this happens, I'll know she's the right one. But that's not what's going on here. Eliezer is asking for something ridiculous. Let me unpack this a little bit. Uh, if you were to ask a Bedouin today, what does it take to water a camel that's just gotten done with a journey? They're going to tell you that to water one camel, requires somewhere in between 10 to 20 trips down into a cistern. How many camels does he have? What he's asking for from God is he's like, listen, I want somebody to come out here. I want to ask for a drink. I want her to give me a drink. And then I want her to voluntarily offer, without being asked, to make one to 200 trips down into a cistern to water my camels. This is not like four steps down into a nice pool of water. This is like 15, 20 steps down into this foreboding cave where you have to get, it's not like this quick little, hee hee hee, this is a really big deal, okay? So he's, he's asking God, now understand, he, he knows something about this bait of, of his master Avraham. He's like, I'll tell you the one thing I know about my master Abraham, and that's that God has called him to radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical service. And you're asking me to find a wife who's gonna fit in that family? Tell you what, God, here's the kind of wife I want, not for himself, for Isaac. I'm looking for the kind of woman, and please don't make this about, well, women go into the well, women serve, and men ride camels or something like that. Like, don't make it about that, that's stupid. Okay? If there's somebody that's going to join the family... This family, they're going to have to be radically committed to hospitality. So, so this is this is Avraham, This is Eliezer saying, "God, I want," and it's a win-win for him. He either finds this unbelievable person, happens to be a woman, unbelievable woman, committed to hospitality, or he gets to be released from the oath. It's a win-win for him. 
So I love this. Let's see what the next line is. I love this. Before he had finished praying. I love that. It's like God's like, yeah, 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 yeah. She's right there. <laughs> He's like, okay, God, listen, I want this and I want this. And I, yeah, 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 shut up. She's right there. I know what you want. She's right there. <laughs> Before he had finished praying, Rivka came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Avraham's brother Nahor. The, the woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down into the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water, waters for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well and, to draw more water and drew enough for all of his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. <laughs> I can imagine him sitting there going, you have got to be kidding me. I picture him talking to the last camel going, are you sure you're done? Okay, like you, no way. What's going on here? Let's keep going. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca, which I don't know about you ladies, but sounds exciting, big gold nose ring. Um, weighs a becca, I'm sure that's, I don't even know what a becca is, but it must be a lot. Um, and, a, and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels and he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. Yeah, we're always prepared for a caravan on camels. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on this journey to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rivka had a brother named Levan, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he seen the nose ring, the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard Rivka tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man went to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels, water for him and his men to wash their feet. And then food was set before him. I am telling you, this family, these sons and daughters of Terah, of whom Avraham was born, of whom Nahor was a brother, and Haran, this family, there's something about them. The ho and by hospitality, I hope you realize I'm not talking about tea and crumpets. I don't know why I get that phrase from, but I'm not just talking about like serving people food when they come by your house. It's not... I'm talking about a posture that says, I'll drop my schedule, I'll drop my agenda, I'll, I'll put aside any plans I had today because you have come into my life and I'm going to bless you because that's who my God is. I, I'm, talking about a, I'm talking about a bigger posture than just serving people food. That's a part of it. Often it's very much a part of it, but it's also bigger than that too. I don't want you to think I'm talking about something else where we have to, like this guilt. I'm talking about here I am. And whatever I have, I can't wait. God has taught me how to be a person who can't wait to give that to you. Okay? So they put food before him and he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us, Levon said. Now we needed to fit the passage in your notes. So we took out 
<laughs> There's 67 verses for this chapter. So I gave Brent quite a workout trying to get all the notes on one sheet of paper this week. But there, we took out the conversation, you can go back and read it, where Eliezer basically just tells the story all over again. Now there's still some good stuff in there, but for the sake of our message today, we're going to skip ahead to after he got done telling the whole story. Okay, this is what they say. Levan and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. Like, this is obviously from God. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rivka, take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. What? Then when Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry, articles of clothing, and gave them to Rivka. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Like, who, what's, what's going on here? Like, they're just... Here's gifts, and let me bless you. No, let me bless you. No, let me bless you. And it's not like a trying to pay them back. It's in a, this generosity, these families. And they, he and the men, and it is a bride price. Like, it is a betrothal. They are pay, paying the bride price. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or so, and then you may go. Uh-oh. Is she going to go? Is she going to be a part of the story? It was looking so good, and now all of a sudden we seem to run into... By the way, uh, this is... I believe this is... Side note, P.S. Um, I believe this is the story that Jesus is referencing when his mother and his brothers show up, and they're asking to see him, and he's with like, his disciples and other... Know the story I'm talking about? And he's like, who are my mother? Who are my mother and my brothers? These people are my mother and my... The, the people who do what my father wants are my mother and my brothers, which I'm sure mom was really happy about that answer. Right? Thank you for the one person that left. Uh, there's this, I think he's talking about this story. It's the only other place in all the Bible, outside of that Jesus story, only other place, the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, where mother and brothers are mentioned together in the same. Only this. I think Jesus is saying, my family are the people who want to be committed to the economy of the kingdom, to radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical faithfulness. Ra that's, that's my family. That's what it means to be a part of God's bait of. I think this is what he's referencing. So what is she going to do? He said to them, do not detain me now that the Lord has granted me success in my journey. Send me on my way that I may go to my master. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rivka and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rivka on her way along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rivka and said to her, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates or the cities of their enemies. Then Rivka and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rivka and left. Now, that would be a pretty good message. Like we could just kind of end right there. Like what kind of people are God looking for? Let's just add this to the list of yet another story of radical hospitality. I mean, I gotta tell you, I grew up in the church my whole life. I spent $40,000 to go to Bible college, went there for four years, never was taught that Genesis was full of stories about hospitality and service. I wasn't taught about that. I was taught about everything, just gets us to Jesus and gets us to Jesus. And I wasn't taught that everything actually sets the stage for Jesus. We're actually seeing Jesus in the way that these people want to live their lives too. Radical hospitality. Radical hospitality. Like I feel like there's a lesson... We could just teach that again, move to implications and be done, but 
I have more. And I have, and I have 10 minutes to give you more. So, uh, this story, I've learned more from this story this year. Like I said, this has been my story of the year. I was teaching this story to my uh, students at Washington State uh, University this year. And in that class, I happened to have the daughter of a rabbi. If you aren't intimidating, that's how you do that. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel worse than feeling like you're the know-it-all and then having the daughter of a rabbi start coming to your class and being like, I'm sorry. So she's in this class, and then there's another, uh, we're, we're walking through the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac last week. It's Resurrection Sunday, our passage for that, okay? We're walking through that story, Abraham, ram caught in a thicket, Okay, all that. And then one of my students raises their hand from the back of the class and they say, why doesn't Isaac come down the mountain? And I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, why doesn't Isaac come down the mountain? Like, Abraham and Isaac go to the mountain. Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain. Abraham and Isaac are on the mountain, but only Abraham comes down the mountain. What? Look at my Bible. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's true. Now, I think the Westerner just goes, well, the author just wants you to assume. That's what we always do. Let's just get on to the point. Let's get on to the preposition. Let's just assume that they all came. No, 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 no. Why does the author take the time to be like, they all went there. They all went up. They were all there, but only one came down. That's it's a totally Jewish question asked by a very Gentile student. And, and I said, I don't know. Like, there has to be a midrash about I've never noticed that in all my years of studying the text. There has to be a, if you're not, if you're new here with us, midrash is like an ancient Eastern commentary, okay? So in our world, we're Westerners, I want to study Genesis, so I pull my Genesis commentary off my bookshelf, I open it up, and I read about what some white guy in Joplin thinks about the Bible. That's <laughs> how it works, okay? But, and if I wanted to like, if I wanted to have the commentary of the people that have been wrestling with this text for 4,000 years, 3,000 years, 2,500 years, depending on how you date it. If I wanted to have people that have been at this for a while, who know the culture and know, it would seem like the best commentary I could use, personally, in my opinion. I would want to go back. Midrash is like Eastern commentary. Now, they don't do it like we do it. They tell stories about stories, so I can understand the story, because <laughs> they love stories. So here's a story. But in order to get you to understand it, I want to tell you a story about the story so you can understand the story. Make sense? Perfect. Okay, so the, I'm like, there's got to be a story that I just haven't heard of, I'm not aware of. Well, the daughter of the rabbi is texting her dad. <laughs> and dad writes back, and she says, my, here's what my dad says. I'm like, oh, no. He says, there are two, there are two strings of Midrash, one of them that's less popular and one of them that's more popular. The, le the less popular Midrash says that Avraham actually went through and sacrificed Isaac on top of the mountain. Saw the ram, all that kind of stuff, but was still obedient to God and followed through with the sacrifice. And then because everybody was obedient, Isaac got resurrected because he was obedient even unto death. Ooh, that sounds interesting, like it's in the New Testament. I think that the writer of Hebrews, in the passage that you studied last week, I think the writer of Hebrews is alluding to that Midrash, by the way. Nevertheless, I'm going to talk about the other Midrash this morning. When I heard it, it made me cry. I tried to tell my Moscow students the next week, and I just wept to begin with. Uh, the other Midrash says that Isaac was so trotting, hang with me, I know you're like, Midrash, I want, you to, I want you to preach the Bible. Okay, we'll get there. Hold on, hang with me. This Midrash says that Isaac was so traumatized on top of the mountain 
And you think, yeah. I mean, I, I think we sometimes, fan, like, we create these biblical fantasies and we just forget that they were real. Like, if these were real, like, how screwed up is Isaac after that experience? I've sat in a lot of therapy unpacking my childhood. Like, what was that therapy session like? Do you have any traumatic experiences from your childhood? Well, there's this one story. <laughs> Tell me about it. My dad tried to kill me. Oh, no, no. No, really, knife the whole thing. Like, that has to have messed up Isaac. This Midrash says he doesn't come down the mountain because he's so traumatized he runs away. Now, please understand that if that Midrash is even remotely, the, the rabbis must be trying to point to something in the text. If that, let's just entertain the thought for a moment. If that Midrash were true, that means that Abraham and Sarah send away for a wife, for a son, they don't even know if he's coming home. He's not even home. Like, and and try, to, try to relate to Abraham and Sarah. They now have nothing because right before that story, God told them to send the other son away. So they've sent that son away, they've tried to be obedient to God's call, and the last son they had ran away. And they sit at home with nothing. And they still believe in the story enough that they send away for a wife, for a son, they don't even know if he's coming back home. And what about Rivka? Tell me about my groom. Well, he hasn't been home and. She's going to come back for a groom? She doesn't even know if he's going to be there? The commitment and the belief, listen to me, the belief in hope. And you're like, Marty, that's all Midrash. You're making a whole lot about Midrash. Oh, really? Let's see what the very next verse in Genesis says. Now, Isaac had come from Bier Lacharoi, for he was What? Brothers and sisters, Isaac was not home. And this isn't like our world where you get to be a certain age and then you go away to live on your own. No, in this world, this is prodigal son stuff. You don't leave your house as father. You don't leave your father's house. <laughs> you don't leave your father's house until your father dies. What, what is he doing? Not only that, but have you ever heard Bier Laharoi before? That's the well of Hagar in Genesis 16. Where has Isaac gone? Is he living with the other part of the family? Like, yeah, stick it to dad. I can't believe this. I'm going to go live with the family that left. I resonate with them. And what is he doing? Let's keep reading. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. The Hebrew word meditate, only place in all the Bible it's used, right here. We don't know what it means, but etymologically it seems to suggest to muse pensively. He's wrestling with something. He's uneasy. The Midrash says that he comes back home when he sees Rivka coming in the distance, right here. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Revka also looked up and saw Yitzhak. They say this is the moment where he comes back to the story. Why? Because hospitality, self-sacrifice, love, compassion, looking out for other people is so compelling, it can bring the most traumatized hearts back to the kingdom. Oh, 
my heart. Oh. I got, I got a few thoughts before we move towards the closing. Some of you have been traumatized in life. You have a crisis. Maybe it was at the hands of somebody else. Maybe it was abuse. Maybe it wasn't. I'm not trying to make Abraham an abuser, by the way, in this story. I'm not saying he did. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying life moves and it has its twists and turns in ways that sometimes people are trying to do the best job they can, and sometimes they really screw the story up, even though they're trying to follow God to the best of it. And sometimes people screw the story up because they're not trying to follow God. I get that. Like all of the above. But some of you have those stories. Some of you were abused by people you should have been able to trust. Some of you were even abused by pastors and priests in different ways, in different levels, different forms of abuse. But some of you were scarred by trauma at the hands of people who claimed to speak and know God. I want you to know that God never, ever ever gives up on you and your story. Some of you, I know there are those of you in the room today that have watched kids leave home. And you've watched kids leave home, but I'm talking about some of you have watched kids leave home. And you don't know if they're coming back. Don't give up on love, compassion, generosity, hospitality, acceptance. Don't give up on love. Don't give up on hope. Not all stories end with Isaac coming home. But don't give up on them anyway. I would say this, some of you have been the ones that have done the abuse. Maybe not major abuse, maybe not, but some of you have made mistakes. Some of you were even trying to do the right thing. You look back on it now and you realize how badly you blew it, but there's no going back. It's the story that you have. Some of you look back on the way that you were fathers or husbands. And there's these stories that want to define you, Abraham and Sarah have to keep showing up. Abraham and Sarah have to wake up every single morning and hit play no matter what they feel like they've done. Somebody pointed out after first service, no wonder Sarah is so furious with Abraham. He took off with her only son that she had left. And when he came back, she wasn't there. When, she, when, when he came back, he wasn't with him. But they have to keep showing up. They can't give up hope. 
Now we need to work toward our, toward our closing, and so I want to invite our servers if they want to go back to get the Lord's Supper, the elements. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have an open table. That means if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus here with us this morning, uh, you're welcome, your family, so please do. I'll just hold on to that bread and that juice, and we'll take it all together here in a moment. But we have some implications to work through. First implication. God is always pursuing those who are pushed away, abused, misunderstood. I don't know what your story is. I don't know who's responsible for your story. Whether it's you, whether it's somebody else, whether it's a mixture of the two, whatever your story is, God is always pursuing those who are pushed away, abused, misunderstood. He never leaves their side. And I know that some of you are still working out that journey, and you, you might say, I couldn't be further away from ever being able to trust God or his people ever again. That's okay. You couldn't run far enough where God isn't still pursuing you. You couldn't have done anything that would make God say, well, okay, then I'm done. God never leaves our side. Second implication, we have to honor and respect the journey of others. We cannot dictate how God heals their brokenness. This is hard for us when we're watching somebody else that we want to come back home and we think we understand their journey. We might even understand their journey. It's still not our journey, it's their journey. And I don't know why people sit here or there for so long or they move to Bier La Haroi. I don't know why they do the things that they do. I don't know why they trust this person and not trust that person. I don't know how many broken families I've heard the stories of and children and custody battles and this and that and all this stuff. I don't know how it all works. What I know is that it's their path. You cannot control or dictate how they get healed on their path. You can only honor and respect the journey they're on as they navigate their brokenness and be there for them as they do. This is hard, parents. Very, very hard. What about next implication? This is our part. So God's part is that he never leaves our side. No matter which character we are in the story, God never leaves our side. Their part is that they have to work out their journey, walk their path. Our job, our job is to never grow weary in doing good. Never give up on the mission of God. Never give up on the story and the narrative of what God's doing in the world. Never give up on love. Never give up on acceptance. Never give up on generosity. Never give up on hospitality. Not all Isaacs come home but nothing will ever be more compelling than the love, the generosity, the hospitality, the acceptance of God. Never give up, which leads me to my last implication, hope. 
Last week, we talked about resurrection. We talked about Hanani. Hanani, here I am. Hanani. God says, Hanani. God asks us to say, Hanani. Why? Because we're children of the resurrection, because that's what hope looks like. When Isaac comes home, what will he find? Hopefully, a family and a Badov who says, Hanani. We've never left. We're still here. Hopefully, Isaac shows up and walks to the door and says, Hanani. Here I am. And it's all because God, at every juncture along our way, through every crisis, every traumatic event, has looked at us and said, Hanani. We're going to make it. Hope. And we hold in our hands how much God believes in hope. Bread and juice. A Jesus that would come and say, this is how much God believes in his world. This is how much God believes in hope. This is how much God wants to put it all back together. This is how much God understands your pain. This is how much God understands your pain. God knows. God knows what it is to be rejected. God knows what it is to be unjustly abused. God knows what it means to have kids go away. God knows. God knows. God says, I'm with you. Hanani. The greatest Hanani you hold in your hands. That night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat, this is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember God. Later in the meal, Jesus took a cup. And in essence, he was able to say, this is what Hanani looks like. This is what God's covenant with all of you looks like. When God said he would provide the sacrifice, when God said he would walk the blood path, when God said this is it, this is God showing up Hanani every time we need it. So he took the cup, he passed it to his disciples, he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever you do this, remember, let's remember Jesus. God, I, I know that it's hard to be children of the resurrection. With some of the stories that are represented in this room, it's hard to be people who could believe in hope. Because it always seems like death gets the last word. It always seems like ultimately evil wins. Darkness has victory. It seems like defeat is where ultimately our stories end. But God, resurrection tells us that there's always hope because ultimately life conquers over death. Light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. Ultimately, God, we're told that all these things that belong to the order of death don't get the last word. Greed and abuse and evil fall to the ground, shattered to pieces in the face of goodness, light, love, hope. So God, my prayer would be that you would invite us 
to pray today as we close. That when we understand resurrection, we would rise from the ashes of our own defeat. That the resurrected king would resurrect me. Whatever part of the story we played, whether it was the abused or the abuser, whether it was the Isaac or the Abraham or the Hagar or anybody in between, God, I pray you would allow us to be people of hope, of resurrection. We pray all these things in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.